I want you to turn in your Bibles here tonight to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to go straight into the Word of God. This is the second message in this series of penal substitution. And I believe it's absolutely vital, the truth that we're dealing with here tonight. I want to read from Philippians chapter 3, beginning verse 17. And my message tonight is enemies of the cross. Read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, brothers, fellow Christians, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And Father, thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. Where would we be tonight if Jesus had not died and bled on the cross in our place, nor God bearing our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities? Lord God, we believe what the Bible says about this, that we have been justified, made righteous with his righteousness because he took our place, our punishment. He suffered the wrath of God at Calvary. And oh God, we do believe that the love of God is made manifest at the cross, but also the wrath of God and the righteousness of God and the holiness of God and the wisdom of God and the power of God. And Father, we pray tonight that the power of the cross, the power of the message of the preaching of what happened at the cross will be made manifest in our midst, nor God to give us power to live this Christian life in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. My message is enemies of the cross. Last week we dealt with what penal substitution is. Jesus taken our place on the cross. The innocent for the guilty. That he bore our sins or our sins were laid upon him. The consequence, the guilt, the responsibility of paying the price. We dealt with that and we only began last week. But I want to show you the truth of God is powerful. And we're going to deal with it in the weeks ahead. But I've already stated and showed you biblically that penal substitution or Christ paying our penalty in our place is very biblical. Here tonight, I want to move on and deal with the enemies of the cross. And in fact, deal with something that sparked this entire series. These are not foreign subjects to us. If you look back at our preaching series, we preached an entire series on the cross and it took seven messages just to begin to show you the diversity of what actually happened at the cross. We've also before preached two series, at least full series on the blood, 10 messages in one series seven messages in another, three messages in a short series over a year ago about the blood in the last days. 
And we also preached on justification by faith. What happened when Jesus justified us our provided righteousness for us. We preach 14 messages on that. And so you can see we have dealt with these things very thoroughly. But here we are again. When we come to penal substitution, we're beginning to look deeper at the work of Jesus Christ, of God, at a place called Calvary. And we're dealing with penal substitution. But tonight I want to deal with the enemies who attack this truth, who hate it, falsely accuse it, mock it, malign it, make it a laughing stock, and who cunningly draw people away from what is sound biblical doctrine. It says here where we have read Paul writing, Philippians 3 and 18, for many walk of whom I have told you often, Paul warned about false Christians very often. In his letters in the New Testament, we hear many warnings about false teachers who call themselves Christians, who come preaching a Christ, but another Christ. They come preaching the cross, but another cross. They come handling the word of God, but they twist it. They abuse it. They are selective in its use. In fact, they destroy their own soul with what they try to do when they come. And Paul says, I have told you about men like this very often. And he says, even with weeping. Paul used to weep over false teachers who got inside the church, inside the body of Christ, and began to affect genuine, sincere believers, sheep and even lambs. Paul used to weep with a broken heart over this. So don't think this is a light issue. He then says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies. They are opposed to the cross. But yet we know from what Paul writes that they call themselves Christians. At the beginning of chapter 3, he calls in them in verse 2, beware of dogs. He actually calls them dogs. These false teachers these are not just Jews. They're not just pagans. They're not just atheists or of another religion. They are people in the church who handle the scriptures. And Paul actually has to call them dogs. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. They are workers, preachers, ministers, teachers. They are actually caught up in the things of the church. And they call themselves Christians. They say they're followers of Jesus. They give themselves every day to the Bible, to talking about Jesus, thinking about Jesus, praying about Jesus. And yet Paul can actually call them dogs and say, beware of them, beware of the concession. So they've come in and they've changed the message of the cross. And here in verse 18, Paul says, they are enemies of the cross. They preach the cross. They talk about the cross. They claim to represent the true message of the cross. But they have either added to the message, changed the message, neglected some part of the message. And so Paul says they are enemies of the cross. Do you realize in the church of our day, men can preach the cross, talk about the cross, say they, they understand the cross, and yet in the light of God's word, they are enemies of the cross. What is an enemy? Someone who attacks, someone who is against, 
And Paul says the true message of the cross, they are enemies of that true message. They are against the true message. They attack it. They destroy it. They want to kill the true message of the cross. We're not talking about a better word here. We're talking about the message, the preaching of the gospel of what happened on the cross. You may say, that's a very strange thing to think, that people would attack the message of the cross. Oh no, it's mentioned def- different places in the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, But there were false prophets also among the people in the Old Testament, even as there shall be false teachers among you. And listen this carefully. Who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. The word privily there means to bring them in sideways, to bring them in unnoticed. It means that they slide in beside you and they sit down in the church almost unnoticed. It means that they bring in teachings cunningly, craftily, secretly, under a guise of respectability or orthodoxy. They come in looking like lovers of the cross, but really they are enemies of the cross. And so Peter says that you need to beware of these false prophets or false teachers. These are men coming in with ministries who seem to have gifted ministries. They have knowledge of the Bible. They have read it inside out. They can quote it maybe better than you can. And yet Peter says they have come in secretly, unhidden, or or, uh, without being noticed, and they have begun to arise. What do they bring in? They shall bring in, not at the beginning. You see, they come in and they look like us. They act like us. They preach like us. But once they are in position, it's so strategic. It's the devil has sowed them. They are tares. They are deceivers. Once they are in position, they bring in damnable heresies. The word damnable means teachings that will take you to hell, destroy your soul. So do you realize it's not only wrong living, wrong lifestyle will send you to hell. Wrong doctrine can send you to hell. If you hold the wrong teaching of the cross, you will go to hell for that. You would get cast into hell. There are certain damnable teachings or heresies. The word heresies is the word chosen or choice. It actually means a select group, a chosen body of people. Heresies don't always mean some terrible teaching, but it means a group of people within the church who make a choice, become elect people, and they start gathering around a false teaching. And so that's what damnable heresies are. They're chosen truths that have been picked out And men, false prophets, begin to teach and to preach and gather people to their view. I believe that's what's happened to penal substitution. There is a group of men have arisen in the church and they attack the truth. They are enemies of that truth. And as they preach against it, they are gathering people out. That's all they preach. That is the heart of their gospel. It's not a proclamation of what they do believe. But they gather people out from the church by preaching against what we believe and what I believe is sound doctrine. They are actually against this teaching. Notice the next bit. I want you to hear this very carefully. Even 
denying the Lord that bought them. So you've got false teachers in the church preaching Christ, preaching the cross, preaching the Bible. And they are secretly, they've come in secretly, but they bring in secretly their teachings, heresies, and no special chosen teachings. They use that teaching to draw people unto themselves, even denying the Lord, talking about Jesus Christ, that bought them. So you know who this is? These teachers in their teaching begin to deny. What they teach denies the Lord Jesus Christ that bought them. You know what the word deny in there means? It means to contradict, to disavow, to reject, to refuse. The one that bought them, what is it that Jesus bought us? When the Bible says that Jesus bought us, it means he purchased us, redeemed us. He paid a price through his blood on the cross. Do you know a lot of these teachers do not believe that Jesus paid a price on the cross? That he paid a price to redeem you? They don't believe that. They actually ridicule that, mock that. And so there was in the early church, men, false teachers came in and began to teach certain things to draw people unto themselves. What were they doing? They were denying the one that bought them. They actually attacked the teaching that Christ had bought them on the cross. They hated the thought of blood redemption, that the blood purchased our salvation. And it says, and they bring upon themselves swift destruction. Do you know what this denying actually means? It literally means to say no. They're saying no to the one who says, I redeem you by my precious blood. I pay a price. But here, Peter is saying, they say no. They actually say, we disagree with that. This is false teachers in the church in the first century, in the days of Paul and Peter. They're there coming in with teachings in the church about Christ and the cross, but they're saying, no, we do not believe that he bought us. And so they firmly denied the finished work of the cross. They brought in other teachings, other claims very carefully. Doesn't it say in Acts chapter 20 and 28, Paul writing about the church at Ephesus, the church of God, which he, that is God, Jesus, has purchased with his own blood. Who could possibly deny that Jesus has purchased the church by his blood? It's scripture. It's a biblical doctrine. This is what penal substitution is. Jesus died in our place. He paid a price for your sin. He suffered the consequence so that you could become righteous and go free. So there's deniers in the church. They deny truth. Listen again in Titus chapter 1 verse 16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. So here they're saying, I know God, I know Christ, but by their works they contradict. They stand against the truth. They are denying. They're saying no to a teaching of holiness being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work, reprobate. So there are deniers in the early church. Deniers aren't just atheists. It's people in the church who by their doctrines deny the truth 
or deny a right lifestyle. Again, in Jude chapter one, verse three, it says, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. You know, when Jude began to write his letter, he said, all I wanted to do was write to you about salvation. I think he wanted to write a letter about the blood and the cross and justification and the love of God and salvation. That's how he began to write his letter. But he said it was needful or necessary for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye would earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Why did he feel it was needful for this reason? For there are certain men crept in unawares. It's the same word coming in sideways, unnoticed, very stealthily, secretly. He said, I had a right for you to contend or to fight, to rise up and begin to fight for the gospel, not just to enjoy it, but to fight for the basic truths of it. Why? Because certain men have crept into the church who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. So the message of grace, they say, you can live anyway. It it doesn't matter. God won't condemn you. God understands your sin and your disobedience. And so they change the gospel into lasciviousness or an allowing of sin. And then listen, this statement. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What were they doing? They were denying who he was. You know how? They were coming in. Oh, they called themselves Christians. They said they were born again. They said they believed in Christ. They said they were forgiven. They said they are messengers of the cross. And yet here they are. They're actually changing the message and they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the Bible shows us there's many Christian preachers in the New Testament in the first century. There are many Christians who denied Christ. They talked about him. They preached him. They said they lived for him and they knew him. And yet by their doctrines and teachings, they denied him. They contradicted him. They said no to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. What a dangerous thing that we are dealing with in these days and at this time. You see, I believe that genuine believers are under attack. We are at war. And we don't only preach about the blood and the cross to encourage us and strengthen us and to build us up. We've also got to fight for this truth. And when it's attacked, we've got to expose the wrongdoers. Let me do that here tonight for a moment. Let me give you the outstanding statement of heresy that attacks this truth. In 2003, Steve Chalk an English pastor of a Baptist church, wrote a book called The Lost Message of Jesus. Notice how they always think we've lost the truth and they are going to restore it. In that book written 20 years ago, 20 years ago, as of this year, he came out with a statement saying that penal substitution was cosmic child abuse. That's what he called it. Let me give you the exact quote. I want you to understand something about this man. 
Chalk now is 67 years old. He was 47 when he published this book and it became very popular. He was an ordained Baptist pastor in 1981. He was ordained and educated at Spurgeon's Bible College in London from a very sound biblical background. In the 90s, I can remember him on BBC leading songs of praise. When I heard him on there, I I was only a young man. I'm listening to him and I go, this guy isn't saved. And yet he was accepted as an evangelical pastor and leader. In the 90s, he became very influential and famous, always on television across Britain. He even got in the Guinness World um, Book of World Records for becoming the fastest money-generating sports person in world history. Twice over, he managed to, to get that. Isn't it funny how money always comes up with these guys? His face was very prominent. He was on the main religious program in all of Britain, the one and only main program. He was the face of it. I didn't like the guy. Now I know why I didn't like the guy. Just didn't fully understand it then. But you know, over the years, chalk has come out promoting homosexual relationships and it needs to be accepted in the church. He has denied the authority and inspiration of scripture. He believes in evolution, that we come from monkeys and that it's okay to believe that. He doesn't believe Adam and Eve were real. He denies the total depravity of sinners or that we were born sinners. And he constantly denies the basic simple truths of the New Testament. He doesn't believe in hell. He doesn't believe in judgment. He doesn't believe in wrath. And this man is the man that unleashed one of the greatest attacks against penal substitution. Let me read what he wrote in that book. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence, penetrated by God towards humankind, but born by a sin, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. This book was released in 2003 and it created a storm across the church. And yet men like Philip Yancey from who some think is an evangelical. He wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. He came alongside Chalk and agreed with them. So did Bran McLaren, the great heretic. If you don't know about them, don't worry. I'm so glad here tonight. And then there was another famous person in Britain who's become very influential called Bishop N.T. Wright. He was the Bishop of Durham. He's written some 70 books and created a whole new teaching about the new perspective on Paul. The justification by faith doesn't mean that you're justified by sin. He has changed right across the church. 
That whole teaching, he also believes in evolution, denies a real Adam and Eve, doesn't believe in a literal physical return of Christ, doesn't believe in a real hell with real fire. So this bishop came in alongside Chalk to help him. There was such an outcry across England. This bishop stepped in and defended him against all attack and all opposition. I've got so much to say on all of this. I've got all these pages but I'm, I'm going to cut to the chase. I want you to hear what he has said. And N.T. Wright has said. And other false heretics have said against this truth that we are preaching on. In fact, I think as I state what they say, you're going to see how dangerous, erroneous, and that it's a denial of what Jesus done on the cross. They are enemies of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are attacking the heart of the gospel. And when you see that, you know the devil is behind this. I believe this man, Steve Chalk, this Baptist pastor who is so famous, his face so well known, is a wicked man, an evil man. And yet people around him will say, he's a nice man, a kind man. Some people will debate him and say, he's our brother in Christ. He's a fellow born again Christian. He insists that he's a born again, Bible believing, evangelical Christian. That's what he says. And yet he can call penal substitution a form of child abuse. I want to tell you, men like Chalk and men like Wright are enemies of the gospel. N.T. Wright is one of the smoothest men I've ever encountered in the church in my lifetime. He is educated. He is an academic man with his 70 books. He is proficient in his language. He is convincing in his arguments. He knows theology. He knows history. He knows his Bible. And with that, he uses it. Do you know what he said to Chalk when he came out? He, he actually told Chalk, he said, I agree with what you are saying in this book. I agree with your book. In fact, I disagree with the books written against you. In fact, our teaching, he said, it is deeply, profoundly, and disturbingly sub-biblical. That's what he thought. And yet this bishop, he said, but listen to me, Stephen, Steve Chalk. He says, now, I agree with you, but I'm going to keep the term penal substitution. I'm going to keep preaching it. I'm going to use that term. I'm going to say I believe it, but I'm going to change it and redeem it back to what I believe it's real meaning. So you preach against it. I'll use it and keep preaching. But both of us are preaching from the same text or the same position. You see how wicked, how evil and how corrupt this is. So let me embark on some of the arguments. And let's go through and shoot them. Some of them I'll spend a bit of time on. Others I'll just mention in passing or we'll be here till the early hours of the morning. Do you know what I find? I've listened to several of these men in America and in England. Very different men. And yet I hear all the same statements, all the same examples, all the same words. It's almost like they've all copied each other. It's all like they can't go anywhere else for their arguments. Either they're using the same book or they listen to each other on YouTube. Can I warn you, be very careful what you listen to. People challenging the gospel, raising questions about the Bible, lying about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If all you do is listen YouTube videos or online messages or read things online or read heretical books, if you're not spending time, if you don't know this Bible, you cannot defend against error. You can't even discern. You'll end up so confused, so messed up, so disorientated. You better know this book, this Bible, before you ever listen to error. Or these men are so cunning. They're so twisted. They're so enabled of the devil that you'll get led down. Pass, you wish you'd never gone down. So let me go through a handful of these. Number one, and I'm going to give you their statements. God can forgive sin and sinners without the cross or without the shedding of blood. God can forgive you without the cross. He didn't need the cross, doesn't need the cross. You know what? Chalk and many of these men, they say, Jesus forgave sin before the cross. Therefore, that means he didn't need the cross. The cross is not essential or central to forgiveness. Jesus did not die on the cross to forgive you because he could forgive you without the cross. After all, look at the gospels. He's with sinners. He's loving sinners, forgiving sinners. Sure, he hadn't died on the cross. How could he forgive them? And yet the blood hasn't been shed yet. So there you have examples. Jesus forgiven sinners just because he wanted to. He loved them. He didn't have to shed his blood. He didn't have to die on a cross. It hadn't happened yet. Aren't I quoting scripture to you tonight by saying that? This is what they begin to say. Do you know what? All through the Old Testament... Every true, genuine believer looked forward to the cross through types, shadows, promises, and prophecies. We know that David was justified by faith. We know that Job was justified by faith. How could they be when Christ had not come yet and the blood had not been shed yet? It's because all of them could look forward to the cross. All we look back to the cross. All of us look to that same place by faith through the word of God, and we believe that Jesus Christ died. Do you know in the Bible, there's no provision for forgiveness apart from the blood. One of these heretics also said, oh, but look at the prodigal son, a parable, a teaching of Jesus, how the father forgave him, ran to him, and he said, look, there's no mention of blood, no mention of substitution, no mention of the need For sacrifice, the father just forgave the prodigal son, and that was it. That's very dangerous thinking. And yet these are the main arguments of these men. They believe that God the father just cancels, just forgives, but nothing needs to happen for that. It is a payment for a debt. Sorry, if a payment for a debt is demanded, is it forgiveness? I'm telling you what they're saying. In other words, if God says, I've forgiven you, but he's demanding a payment, how can that be forgiveness? This is how they begin to argue around and saying, forgiveness is separate from the cross. It's not connected. They say they believe in the cross, yet they say the cross isn't needed because their message of the cross isn't needed for forgiveness. They so change the cross that it actually becomes a sideline. It's not necessary for forgiveness. 
Do you see when you begin to play games with the cross to change what it means, to change what the Bible teaches, it changes everything. You can begin separating forgiveness from the cross. Forgiveness is just something in God's heart that he gives to whosoever he wants. They also say the traditional view of the cross cheapens God's forgiveness because God is love and he just forgives you. To say it depends on the cross makes forgiveness cheap and the love of God cheap. Do you know what John the Baptist said when he came preaching in John chapter 129? Pointing at Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Without a lamb you don't get your sin taken away. You cannot be forgiven. They say God can forgive without blood. I say God cannot forgive without blood. God is sovereign. He's got all power. He cannot. He will not forgive unless there's a lamb. John came preaching that. If this is not true, then John was a liar. But he said, behold the lamb of God. He taketh away the sin of the world. The lamb of God is mentioned all through the New Testament. Philip in Acts chapter 8 says that the Lamb of the Old Testament is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, Peter in 1 Peter 1, and John in Revelation 5 all talk about Jesus Christ being the Lamb of God. Do you realize forgiveness of sins? What happens to your sin is connected to that Lamb. Anyone who says forgiveness is not connected to the Lamb. They are rank heretics. That is a dangerous, dangerous statement. Never allow that to rule with you. Or listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Without shedding of blood is no remission. The word means forgiveness, release of the consequence of your sin. The Bible clearly teaches that without shedding of blood... Being applied to Jesus. If he didn't shed his blood, you don't have forgiveness. The Bible is clear. Do you know what Chalk says in response to this, how he comes back? He says, ah, you're missing a bit of the verse. Yes, I haven't read it yet. He says the other bit of the verse says, in most cases, he demands shedding of blood. That's his greatest argument against it. And so he raises a question. He said, actually, the verse says, in most cases... It takes blood to forgive your sins. And so he raises a question insinuating that the cross did not forgive your sins. Let me read the verse again. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's actually saying in the Old Testament, most things were purged or made clean by the blood, sprinkled with the blood. Then he clearly states, without shedding of blood is no forgiveness of sins. You have these men who hate penal substitution. They're trying to dissect, destroy. And they begin with this. God can forgive you without shedding blood or dying on the cross. There's a whole group of preachers are going about the internet in our day promote an idea that forgiveness can be separate from the cross. That's a very dangerous teaching. Let me just go further for a second. Ephesians chapter 1, 7. In whom we have redemption 
We're purchased. We're redeemed. How? Through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. Do you realize the entire New Testament of the apostles, they constantly preach forgiveness is by the blood. And yet these heretics say, God can just forgive you. Out of love, he forgives you. He doesn't need blood. He doesn't need ransom. He doesn't need the cross. Oh yes, God had a plan for the cross, but he could just forgive you. It's not what the Bible says. Colossians 1:14. in whom or in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You don't have forgiveness without the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, no remission. When a heretic comes with his wise word, smooth word, oh, look at the prodigal son. He didn't need the blood. Oh, oh look at those sinners Christ associated with. Sure, the blood hadn't been shed. Be very careful what you hear. If you sit and listen to these men long enough and you don't know the word of God, you don't know how to defend yourself, you're going to start thinking they're wise. These are very gifted men. They have special revelation. They understand the word of God. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. That means a price of release. And so we see that Jesus Christ is a ransom. He delivers slaves. Christ pays a ransom, a price. Do you know what they say all the time? Jesus didn't pay a price on the cross. Then take the word ransom out of your Bible. Take the word redemption out of your Bible. These men who want forgiveness without the blood, They actually want to tear the word of God apart. They sound intelligent. They sound educated like Wright and Chalk and many others. And yet it shows they are utterly illiterate. They're not taught of the Holy Spirit of God. I may not be academically trained. I may not have sat in a university college or have a PhD like they do. But I want to tell you, I've been taught of the Holy Spirit of God. I've been taught the word of God on my knees in the presence of the Lord. He will keep you from deception. We have redemption, forgiveness through the blood. Number two, on the cross, your view presents God the Father as an angry, wrathful God who's pouring out his anger on his only begotten son. That's what they say. They build a caricature. They talk all the time saying, there's God, in your view, God the Father's there. He is angry, searching for blood. He is angry, searching to vent his wrath out upon an innocent person. And it doesn't matter who it is. He is emotionally driven and he pours out anger and wrath upon his innocent son who's wholly pure and has never done anything wrong. They say your view creates a a picture of the father as being an angry, wrathful father. In an hour of abuse, child abuse, where fathers are delinquents, angry, abusive, they're saying, your view of God the Father's wrong for this generation. 
people are going to misunderstand. They say, when you say that God the Father punishes Christ in our place, you're presenting a picture of an angry, wrathful God. In fact, these people who don't believe in penal substitution, they deny the wrath of God. They don't believe God poured out his wrath at Calvary. They undermine the teaching of the wrath of God. Listen, the wrath of God is biblical. 20 different words are used in our Bible to describe the wrath of God. About 580 times in the Old Testament, we read of the wrath of God in some incident or situation. Even John the Apostle in the New Testament, the Apostle of Love, talks about the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is mentioned at least 10 times in the book of Romans in the New Testament. His wrath, and listen to me, this is the true wrath of God. What is wrath? Wrath is anger stirred to action. What is wrath? Wrath is not an emotion or a feeling. It's an action. Every time you read about wrath, it is the outpouring of anger. It is God acting. So anger can be in the heart. Anger is an emotion. But when anger gets stirred or moved to action, it becomes wrath. Anger becomes wrath. They are very closely connected. And so his wrath, if you know the true teaching of the Bible, his wrath is his opposition to all that is evil, arising, contradicting his holy nature. You remember what we're told in the Bible? John the Baptist said, flee the wrath to come. It's amazing these teachers, they deny the wrath of God. Oh, God doesn't have wrath. God isn't angry. He's not angry with sinners. He won't pour wrath out on sinners. He didn't pour out wrath on his son. He is not that kind of person. He's not an angry God. He's not a God with wrath in his heart. He's a loving God, a kind God, a nice God, a merciful God. But he's not a wrathful God. Do you know what they're doing? They're again tearing about at, apart the truth of God. They insinuate that at the cross, God was filled with emotional anger, just looking to vent wrath on anyone. But do you know what the Bible says in Acts 2.23 concerning Christ? Him being delivered by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now look at that for a second. The determinate counsel. This is counsel way before the earth, way before creation. What is the counsel? It is sitting in counsel together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit came together. They planned the redemption of man. The determinant counsel of God is when God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit talked together, planned together the redemption of man. This was not a quick thing. This was not just God the Father pouring out emotionally his wrath at Calvary. This was an ancient plan to send the Lord Jesus Christ to die for sinners. You know why? God's wrath is stirred against sin and sinners. It has been, it is, and it will be in the days ahead. These teachers undermine the whole teaching. They don't believe that God is a wrathful God. Let me tell you, the Bible teaches he is a God of wrath. Yes, he's a God of love, but he's a God of wrath. It says in Romans 2 and 5, but after thy hardness and impotent heart, 
you treasure up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Do you know God's wrath is the revealing of his righteous judgment? He's righteous. He is good. He is right in what he does. He is perfectly holy. When he pours out his wrath on an unrepentant sinner, do you know what? It's going to be visible to that sinner, to all of us, to everyone, that he is a righteous God. The day he pours out his wrath on every sinner, it's going to be a day of him showing, I am a righteous God. I've never done anything wrong. And so he says, sinners who do not repent, they keep storing up. They don't realize it. They keep storing up every day wrath. They're storing up the wrath of God. You see how delayed God's wrath is. It hasn't come yet. It's not here yet. They're still alive. But every day in their rebellion, in their actions, in their thoughts, in their words, in their decisions, they are storing up wrath. Oh, that they would flee the wrath to come. Do you realize they're not being judged yet? That's the love of God. God doesn't desire that any man perish or die in his sins. And it says, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Or 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. These false teachers don't believe in the wrath of God. I believe in the wrath of God. When Jesus shed his blood, paid my penalty on the cross, I was delivered from the wrath to come. They don't believe that. They say there is no wrath to come. Do you know, even though Jesus died on the cross, there's still wrath to come. There's a day of wrath. There's a day of judgment. And you know what? God the Father is going to come as the God of wrath. He is going to come and pour out. What do we read in the book of Revelation concerning Jesus Christ? Again, he's the Lamb of God. It talks about the wrath of the Lamb of God. Do you see that in Revelation at the end? When Jesus comes again, he comes as the Lamb of God, but he comes with wrath. The Lamb comes with wrath. The Lamb that was slain at Calvary to quench the wrath of God is going to come with wrath. He is going to pour out wrath. He comes with wrath for those who have stored up the wrath of God. And he's going to actually judge them. It says in 2 Thessalonians 1 and 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Do you see that when Jesus comes again, he's coming with vengeance. Oh, our Jesus, our heavenly father isn't a God of wrath. He just loves. Then tear these scriptures out of your Bible. If you don't believe this, then cast away your Bible. Tear pages out. Tear in, in entire books out of your Bible. Because you don't believe in the same God as me. I believe in the God of love. I believe in forgiveness. But I believe there's something happened on the cross. You know what? God's wrath was poured out there. If it wasn't poured out at Calvary, then where was it poured out? How did you get delivered from the wrath to come? Hell is real. That's why most of these false teachers 
who deny penal substitution don't believe in hell. They don't believe in an eternal hell. They don't believe in a literal hell. You know why? They've removed the wrath of God from the cross. They've removed the wrath of God from the character and the heart of God. They say he wasn't really a God of wrath. And so again, you can see change in the cross changes many other things. This talk he mentions in one of his videos that I watched about the song, the song we like to sing here, In Christ Alone. And he mentions that in 2013 in America, the Presbyterian Church voted, I hate voting, (laughs) they voted to drop that hymn from their hymn book. But before they said, let's change that word, the wrath of God to the love of God. Let's instead of singing, the wrath of God was satisfied, we will sing, the love of God was satisfied. They contacted the two authors uh, of the song, Keith Getty from Northern Ireland and Stuart Townsend, and asked them, can we change officially the song and then we'll keep it in our hymn book. Those two men said, no, 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 that would change the song. That would destroy the song. And so they said, no, we won't allow you. So they removed it from their hymn book. Men like Chalk, men like Wright, don't like this song and many other songs in our hymn books are that we sing. Listen to the verse. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. These men so hate the truth, the fact of the wrath of God. They don't believe God's wrath was satisfied on the cross in the blood of Jesus, that Jesus paid the price. So they hate songs like this. They literally hate it. This comes from rank liberalism, anti-biblical heresy from the pit of hell. How dangerous these sorts of teachings are. Number three. You can see we're not going to get through all of this. But I want you to understand. Do you see by just me laying out? I've only dealt with two things so far. And already you begin to see how dangerous this is. So they say it's cosmic child abuse. You know why? They want to manipulate you, play emotional games on you, intimidate you, make you ashamed to mention. Do you really believe the wrath of God was poured out in Christ? And then you go, well, I I don't like to say that. You know what? You need to know your Bible. Number three, your teaching creates a radical difference, separation and disunity between the members of the Trinity. You divide between father and son because your teaching says this angry father is punishing his innocent son. Therefore, you're separating the Trinity You're actually saying God is wrathful with God. Or you're saying the father is angry with his own son who he knows hasn't done anything. You are saying God is deliberately punishing God. Or God is punishing his son who he knows to be innocent. And in fact, these teachers, they introduce a statement that is heretical. They say And this is what they believe, that God was killed on the cross. God wasn't killed on the cross. Jesus, in his humanity, in his physical body died. Nobody killed 
God at the cross. Jesus died as a man on the cross. God wasn't killed at the cross. If God died at the cross, God help us. Everything would have exploded in one second. And so they again bring their false teaching, and I don't need to spend much time in this, and they try to divide. They say, you are dividing between father and son. One is angry. The father is always angry. There's the son. No, 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 no. This is a covenantal plan. The father and the son planned together to save man. They loved each other. God actually poured on him the consequence of our sin. There's no contradiction here. There's no division between father and son. Remember Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, your will, not my will. He was submitting to the will of his heavenly father. They were working in unity together. When Jesus went to the cross, he willingly went there in agreement with his heavenly father. His father always loved him and loved him on the cross. God the Father was not punishing Jesus, simply pouring his wrath on Jesus. He wasn't doing that. He actually, they had agreed that Christ would take the consequence of what you deserved on the cross. He wasn't punishing Christ. He was striping Christ, wounding Christ on your behalf. Number four, he demands his pound of flesh. They often say this. This angry God is demanding his pound of flesh as if he has a bloodlust, a bloodthirst. That all he wants is to see death, vengeance, brutality. You know what they do? They paint a caricature. You know what a caricature is? They'll take a truth, the real person, and they'll expand it, distort it until it becomes funny, hilarious, ridiculous, uh, ugly. That's what they're doing. So they'll take a truth of what you believe and they begin to so twist it out of shape. Yes, God demanded blood to be shed. No forgiveness without the shedding of the blood. And they make it grotesque. What does the Bible say? The soul that sins, it shall die. You're making jokes about God demanding his pound of flesh. Hold on. The soul that sins, shall die. There's a consequence of sin. You will die. He came to do the will of the Father. No one takes his life. He willingly lays it down. Remember what Jesus said. No one's got the power to take my life. I lay it down. I take it up again. Do you think the Father was merely doing things on him? Christ, this is his work. This is his work. Number five, God would never punish an innocent person, his son. It's just not righteous. So they say Christ is innocent. Therefore, how can you punish him? You know what these guys do? They use logic, reasoning, which is utterly separate from the Bible. You start listening to them and say, yeah, there's some logic. God can forgive you. He's God. Surely he can forgive you. Oh, 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 yes. Of course God wouldn't. Punish an innocent person? Hold on, what does the Bible say? It says Christ was innocent. He was sinless. He was without blame. But he became guilty for you. He took your place. He took your punishment. You can't just reason and logically say that God would never punish an innocent person without going to Scripture. What does the Bible say? 
He was rich, but he became poor. He was innocent, but he took your place. Time and time again, it teaches this. Number six, it turns sinners off. This actually confirms to them the church is judgmental when they see that God doesn't like their sin. If you come preaching God's judgment or wrath against sin, it'll turn sinners off. Hold on, sinners are off anyway. It doesn't matter if you preach the love of God. They laugh at it and say, I don't believe that. Don't tell me that preaching the love of God is better than preaching the wrath of God. We actually need to preach both. Some get saved through hearing the love of God, others by the wrath of God. But here they are, and they all say this. Do you know I've been on the streets evangelizing for more than 30 years, maybe 35 years. I've been on the streets every week for decades on end, preaching, evangelizing, meeting every kind of sinner. Do you know I've never once in my entire life witnessed, spoken to a sinner Whoever once said, I do not believe this because God the Father is an angry God and because he poured his wrath out on the cross. I haven't met one single sinner who ever said that. But these guys all have. That's all they talk about is that this gospel, you saying Jesus died for sinners on the cross, will turn them all away. Nobody's going to come and believe that. I want to tell you, these guys are manipulating. Number seven, God did not kill Jesus on the cross. It was men, Roman soldiers, Pilate, the Roman Empire. It was the entire system. It was men. They killed him. They keep repeating this. It wasn't God the Father done it. Hold on. We dealt with it last week and we'll deal with it in the weeks ahead. It was God who striped him, who wounded him on the cross. That's clearly taught. It is God who done the work on the cross in Christ dying. If it was only merely men, how could he suffer for sin? How could he forgive sin? How could his righteousness be fulfilled? Do you think that Christ was just a victim, an innocent God-man who didn't fulfill any purpose apart from sinners venting their anger, pouring out their wrath? They killed him and Christ was a mere victim without purpose. You know, your man Chalk again, he was asked, said, so do you believe the cross was just an accident? Or did, was it in God's plan? He couldn't even answer the question. You know why? Because he, he believes it was an accident. A freak, tragic accident showing the evil of men all around him. They done it. It was their will. It was their sin that crucified Christ. Number eight, if your teaching is true, then it's nothing but old-fashioned paganism. It's not anything unique. The need for blood was no different than what those pagan gods demanded. Your blood religion is just the same as all the pagan religions. That's what they actually say. Listen to me. Actually, blood sacrifice was presented by God ever before there was any other religion. There were no pagan religions. Go back to Adam and Eve. There is no other religion. There is no other paganism. There is no pagan culture. Right at the beginning with Adam and Eve and his son Abel, we see blood sacrifice, an animal, a lamb dying, having its blood shed. 
that you could be forgiven and in right relationship with God. To begin to say that our view of Jesus dying and suffering for sin by shedding his blood is mere paganism. That is atheism to even raise that accusation. These heretics are attacking the cross, attacking the atonement, attacking the blood. They should not be accepted as brothers, not accepted as Christians. They are anti-scripture. They are anti-Christ. They are in no family association with me. I want to tell you. They go on to say that in the Old Testament, it changed from blood sacrifice. In the Psalms, David says, Oh God, you didn't ask for sacrifices. Otherwise, I would have brought them. They say David changed his theology. There's a moving on. So they said all through the Psalms, there's no outward ritual blood sacrifice. Now they say it's a hard issue. And then by the prophets, none of them believe this. It's just righteous living. Do you see how they destroy the Bible? Number nine, the events of a long weekend. Several hours on the cross. How can that be equal to you spending eternity in hell? So again, they're using logic. They're pulling arguments out. Hold on. Let's go to scripture and test this. This is God's plan, God's eternal plan, God's word. And you think you know better by your logic. I don't think my eternity in hell would equal his six hours on the cross. I I don't see how that could be. That's because you're blind. That's because your heart is rotten. That's because you don't realize how serious sin is. You know, on the cross, this is God's only begotten son, God's plan. His wrath is quenched. His vengeance against the sin that you committed is dealt with in the cross in such a real, real way that you can be set free and not spend an eternity in hell. Other teachers like Wright contest that the cross as opposed to resurrection. You want to emphasize the cross in this teaching. What about the resurrection? Sure, the cross would be nothing without the resurrection. Be careful that men start saying the resurrection is more important than the cross or that by focusing on the cross, you're denying or minimizing the resurrection. Oh no, I've never done that. But listen to me, the cross is central to salvation, central to redemption. And I want to tell you, I do not deny the resurrection, but men who try to use the resurrection to say the cross is nothing, without the resurrection, the cross would be nothing. That's true. But when you minimize the cross, I get very worried. Others say, this is mentioned nowhere in Romans. We'll deal with that in the weeks ahead. Others say that there's not just one theory of the atonement. There's actually eight of them in church history. And different great men have preached different great things. And your teaching only began at the Reformation. That's when it began. So it's a new teaching. It began with John Calvin. He had a very academic lawyer's mind. He created this teaching, but it was never heard of in the 1500 years before that. That is not true. So they twist history. They twist the Bible. They twist logic. Do you know what they're actually doing? They're going to end up in an eternal hell. Let me deal with one last one before we close. This teaching of yours denies the love of God because God is love. They say that their God is a God of nonviolence. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of love. 
but you're teaching that the wrath of God was poured on Christ on the cross. They say that is violent. They say that is wicked. They say, what about Jesus saying, love your enemies? If God the Father poured wrath on his son, how's that loving your enemies? They say, your teaching is denying the love of God. Instead of God loving the son, here he is pouring out wrath on the son. Be very careful what these men do. They twist things. They lose, use logic. They're academic men. They're intelligent men. But they hate truth. They hate the Bible. They're actually against it. These same people, they present the theory saying the church believed in nonviolence for its first 300 years. To join the Roman army, you had to renounce the sword if you're a Christian. You couldn't join the Roman army. That's what they say. Hold on. That is not presented in Scripture. Just look at the scripture when John the Baptist encounters soldiers and say, what should we do? Be happy with your pay. He doesn't say renounce the sword. Do you know there's people who come, they are pacifists. They don't believe in taking up the sword or taking up the rifle or a Christian can fight in the army or be a member of the army um, because they say being a Christian means you're against violence and you'd never kill or you'd never use force. You, you just submit to everything that happens to you. And they say, our God is like that. He's not a God of violence. He wouldn't judge people. He wouldn't punish people. Then rip the verses out from Proverbs that say, a father who loves his child will discipline or punish that child. Just rip that out. If you don't believe in a God that punishes, that deals with people, if you just believe God is all wrath, and will never infringe on your rights. You're changing the entire character of God. Love becomes a putrid thing. You better keep love in its right context in the cross. Actually, we're told not to take vengeance. That's what they say. Surely Jesus said, don't take vengeance. And yet you're saying God will take vengeance in punishing people in hell or pouring out wrath on the cross. So therefore your father is a vengeful God. He is an angry God. But Jesus said, don't take vengeance. Listen carefully. Actually, we're told not to take vengeance for a certain reason. Do you know why? Because the Bible says God is going to take vengeance on your enemies. Listen to what it says in Romans 12, 19. Very important scripture. Dearly beloved, Avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. In other words, let it go. You let wrath go. Don't take vengeance. Why? Why is God telling you not to take vengeance? Listen to what the Bible says. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Do you know why God is saying, you should forgive. You should let go. Don't get wrathful. Don't take vengeance. You're not allowed to take vengeance. That does not mean that God doesn't take vengeance. You know why you can let go? Because God says, I will take vengeance on your enemies. I will destroy your enemies. I will punish those that have done things to you. That's why you can forgive people and say, I'm letting go of it. You know why? Because I am a God of vengeance. I will deal with sinners. They talk about Oh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Is that your God? 
They play games with us. So what do they believe about the cross? It's very hard to understand. I watched hours and hours of their videos, different guys. I've tried to understand their teaching on the cross. And here I've given you the heart of what they believe about the cross. All I can tell you is what they don't believe, what they're against and what they hate. You know what they primarily hate? Penal substitution. They hate the teaching that we love so dearly. So let me just in close and tell you what they believe. Calvary wasn't unique. For Jesus, the cross became a way of sharing the experience of all of us who feel abandoned by God in their suffering. He felt what you felt. When he died on the cross and the Roman soldiers were there and the Jews were there and he was in Pilate's judgment hall and in the high priest's um, um, palace as well, getting judged, said through all of that and as he died on the cross, he was taken on him the sin. He didn't take your personal sin on him, your sins, your deeds, your... Don't misunderstand. The real message of him suffering for sin was it was the sin of the Roman soldiers. It was their hatred. He was taken upon him. So we've all got it wrong. It wasn't that God the Father laid all of our sin upon Christ. It was the Roman soldiers were pouring out hatred and anger. That's why it says he died for sinners. Because they hated him. He was a moral example of love. He overcame evil by turning the other cheek. And in fact, he only went there to defeat the devil. Somehow, and they can't explain this, they don't even try to say, we don't know. Somehow, Jesus defeated the devil on the cross. And in fact, they teach that he soaked up sin on the cross. Somehow, he soaked it up. All the hatred around him, he soaked it up. And he took that sin and he turned it into love. Yes, in bearing sin, not our sin, but the sin of those around him. He soaked up the hate and it came back as love. Paying miraculously. And that's what Jesus done. Dying for sinners on the cross. I want to tell you. Jesus died on the cross is not cosmic child abuse. And men who deny the real wrath of God, judgment in hell, that God hates sin, that God's angry at sinners. Oh yes, he loves sinners. He does. We've never denied that. We preached it constantly, week in and week out. We're not the ones denying biblical things. These men say, we know the truth. We know God. Use are in error. Well, we're responding. We respond with scripture. You respond with logic. You tear the Bible apart to prove your view of the cross. We actually expound the scripture, explain it, and confirm it with scripture after scripture after scripture. And what we'll do in the weeks ahead is go back into the Old Testament and prove this truth over and over and over and over again that Jesus Christ died for sinners on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. 
Lord God, for this wonderful truth, O God, that you so loved us from eternity past. Lord God, before there was a world, before there was a devil, before there was a sin, Lord God, you sat with God the Son and planned our salvation and redemption. Lord God, you loved us. You didn't want that any man should perish and die in his sins. And so you created a perfect plan of blood redemption of your son coming as a man and taking our place in the cross and suffering the righteous, perfect, justice of God in the wrath of God being poured out upon him and quenching that wrath in the precious blood of the lamb. Lord God, you said you so loved us that you gave your only begotten son. And we believe that tonight there is power in this gospel. Father, I pray, protect our minds and our hearts from the lies of the pit of hell. We know the devil hates this truth. Heretics hate this truth. Sinners hate this truth. Game players hate this truth. Those that love sin and darkness hate this truth. But we love the truth of God and we pray, make it so clear tonight in Jesus' mighty name.